Amen. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you today. Do you have your Bible? Good. You need to open up to Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7. Last week we looked at what is a very memorable, a very well-known scene in Scripture, this battle at Jericho. And when the walls come tumbling down and the children of Israel go in straight ahead, each one, and completely destroy that city, God had shown up and He had showed up strong on behalf of His people. And we get uh, so accustomed to that story and we are so familiar with that story that sometimes we miss the whole point of that story. It seems that we like to put our attention on that 30 seconds of action when the walls fall down and the people go in. But the author seems to put the attention on all the other stuff in the chapter. All of the direction that God gave and all of the obedience of God's people. In fact, I'm fully convinced, not just based on the structure of last week's text, but on this week's text, I'm convinced that the whole point of chapter 6 is the obedience of God's people is that God had told them to do something, and they did it, and, and they received victory, um, not so much as a result of it, but uh, as, as a, I don't even know how to say this, as a product of their obedience. Had they not been obedience, they, obedient, they wouldn't have experienced the victory uh, that they experienced. And you're going to see that all throughout the text today. In fact, if, if Jericho stands as an example of the people's obedience to God, then Ai stands as an example of the people's disobedience to God. We're going to see them contrast each other today. Last week we talked so much about obedience. We also talked about this scene at the end where Rahab is delivered. Rahab and her family are spared and they are welcomed into the children of Israel. In fact, there's a comment that says, to this day, Rahab and her people are a part of the family. And we need to remember that, especially as we study the text today, that here's an outsider who is completely removed from the covenant, completely removed from the promises, and yet is brought near by God's grace and is welcomed into the family. Because what you're going to see today in the text is that there's a guy who is very much a part of the family, but he doesn't want to obey God, and you'll see the trouble for him. One of the texts we look at, looked at last week uh, from the New Testament was Ephesians chapter 2, and I want to read that to you again uh, this morning to remind you about the good news of God bringing people who are far off back to himself. It starts in chapter 2 uh, in verse 11. It says, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh who were called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed by the flesh in the hands of men. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. That's the good news of the gospel, right? That those who are far off can be brought near, and how? By the blood of Christ Jesus. That's the message that I want you to hear every week. That's the message that I wanted you to hear last week and that I want you to hear this week as well. Well, this week is going to be a little difficult to study. And to be real honest with you, I stand before you with a a little bit of fear and trembling because I don't have just a whole heap of great news for you today. In fact, the message is going to be a little bit dark. It's going to be a little bit scary. But what I want you to know is that there's good news waiting on the other side of it. So can we go through the darkness? Go through the darkness so that we see very clearly the light. Uh, Joe said to me uh, just a minute ago, he said, The sin of Achan scares me. And, and to be truthful, the sin of Achan should scare all of us. It should scare all of us. When one man steps out of line and the whole group is, is punished because of it, that should scare all of us. And we're going to study that passage today, starting in chapter 7 of Joshua, verse 1. Verse 1 starts with a very important word. It says, But... 
The sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel. And he said to them, Go up and spy out the land. So the men went up and spied out Ai. They returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up. Only about two or three thousand men need to go up to Ai. Do not make all the people go up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men from the people went up there, but they fled from the men of Ai. The men of Ai struck down about thirty-six of their men and pursued them from the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them down on the descent so that the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, both he and the elders of of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan only to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say since Israel has turned their back before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it. And they will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? So the Lord said to Joshua, Rise up. Why is it that you have fallen on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. And they have even taken some of the things under the ban, and both have stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have also put them among their own things. Therefore... The sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, for they have become accursed. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. Rise up, consecrate the people, and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, has said, There are things under the ban in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you have removed the things under the ban from your midst. In the morning, then you shall come near by tribes, and it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes by lot shall come near by families, and the family which the Lord takes by lot shall come near by household, and the household which the Lord takes shall come near by a man, man by man. It shall be that the one who has taken taken the things under the ban shall be burned with fire, he and all that belongs to him, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has committed a disgraceful thing in Israel. English Standard Version says he has committed an outrageous thing in Israel. Let's pray together. God, thank you for days like this. Days like this when you encounter us with difficult truth. You speak to us convicting words. I thank you for days like this because they set the stage for uh, much mercy, uh, much grace, much repentance and confession. God, I pray that we will hear clearly from you today. God, I pray that we will not be proud, that we will not be stubborn, that we will come before you humble and broken, seeking restoration by your grace. God, I pray today that if we are like Achan, you will show us. That you will show us by mercy. And you will restore us by grace. And it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.
So what I want to do today in, in studying this text is a little different than we usually do. We're going to work through the text, and I'm going to make nine observations. We're going to make nine observations together. And then uh, really where it gets difficult and why I'm so worked up is the application part. The question is what, is, what does this mean for us? Those of us who are in Christ, what do we do with a text like this where God disciplines his people, very harshly disciplines his people to put them back on the right course? What am I to make of this as one who stands uh, in Christ, uh, wrapped in the righteousness of Christ, with the imputed righteousness of Christ within me? What do I do with a text like this? And I think it's clear, I hope it will be clear uh, by the end of the day. First observation that I want you to make is that very first word in verse 1, it is but. Clearly, it is an important word. It is always an important word when it comes up in Scripture because it marks a transition. Um, it, it goes either from good news to bad news or from bad news to good news. There is something that is changing when that word comes up. And here, it is clear that things have changed. Last week, it was great, wasn't it? Last week was so happy and exciting. We saw a great victory, a great wonderful display of God's power and His might on behalf of His people. And it was all good. And we left uh, just fired up and pumped up, right? And then chapter 7 starts out, but, but, it's a difficult thing. The other thing that you need to notice in verse 1 with the word but is that as a reader, you know something that the people who are experiencing it don't know. You have an advantage over them. You have an edge over them because you know about Achan. You know who he was and you know what he did. You know how the story ends up. But you need to do your best as we read through this text to remember that Joshua and the Israelites don't know this yet. They go to Ai thinking everything is great. They go to Ai thinking only about the great victory that God has already given them, expecting another great victory. They don't know what has gone on yet. And thankfully, that God is gracious enough and merciful enough to show them what the problem is. But we need to remember as we read it from the beginning that they don't know what's going on just yet. We have an advantage. That's observation number one, the word but. Observation number two is the lineage or the family tree of Achan. Now this is interesting because we learn more about the family tree of Achan than we do almost any other character in the book of Joshua, including Joshua himself. If you read it in verse 1, it says, For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah from the tribe of Judah. You know a lot about that guy just from that. This guy, Achan, is, is from a pretty prestigious family in Israel. He's from the tribe of Judah, which is quite a big deal, right? You'll learn more about that as the Old Testament progresses. That's kind of a big deal. These people that are mentioned as his father and grandfather and great-grandfather, they are important characters in Israel. What I want you to see from that is that, that Achan is a prominent Israelite. And one commentator said, Achan is as much an Israelite as Rahab was not an Israelite. And I think that's why, part of why the author gives us so many details about Achan is because we're developing a little bit of contrast between Achan and Rahab. What do you know about Rahab? We know quite a bit about Rahab, right? You know what her profession was, don't you? She was a prostitute. You know about where she was from, right? She was from Jericho. You know about the people group that she came from, the Amorites. You know a lot about her, and everything you learn about Rahab is bad. It gets worse and worse and worse. The more you learn about Rahab, the worse it gets. And yet the story of Rahab is one of God's grace and deliverance and welcoming her from the outside. However, the story of Achan is the exact opposite. The more you know about Achan, the better it sounds, right? Until you find out that he stole the stuff and tried to hide it from God. And so here is a guy who has every advantage. 
every opportunity. He's got all the right breeding. He's got all the right family. He's got all the right opportunities, and yet he disobeys God. Do you see the difference here? There's one that you would never expect to be part of the family of God who is, and one that you would expect to never do anything wrong who does. There's a great contrast between Achan and Rahab as this story develops. That's observation number two. Observation number three is very difficult. What you learn, what you learn in verses one and two, pretty interesting. It says, but the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully regarding, in regard to the things under the ban. Who does it say acted unfaithfully? Does it say Achan acted unfaithfully? No, it seems to say there that the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully. The whole group did, right? And then it ties it back to Achan. Look what it says. It says the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. And then it goes back to the corporate nature, the plural nature. It says, therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. This is odd, isn't it? Who sinned? Who sinned in this story? Achan did, right? Who is God angry with? Everybody. There is a lesson there that we need to learn that is not just a lesson that applies to the children of Israel as they live as God's nation of people. There's a lesson there even for us as the church, and it's this. Your individual, private, even secret sin has an effect on the people around you. And you need to remember that all the time. You need to remember that when you are tempted, that what you do has an impact on the people around you. Do you believe that to be true? That is absolutely true. It is true on a spiritual level, and it is true on a very physical level. The things that I do, even things that you don't know about that I do, even sin that is in my life that is very secret and very quiet and well-contained has an impact on you, and your sin has an impact on me. We need always to remember that there is a corporate nature. There is a corporate aspect of our sin. It is not just an individual thing. Oftentimes, we tend to think, oh, yeah, I am involved in this, but nobody's getting hurt. It's not hurting anybody. That's not true. That's not true. If you are involved in something that is sinful, it will likely hurt other people. And we need to be aware of that. This story is a great example. I'm going to show you some other stories when we get to the application part from the New Testament that talk about the same idea, that there is a corporate nature even to our individual sins. Does that make sense? That's observation number three. Number one is the word but. Number two is Achan's family tree. Number three is the corporate impact of individual sin. Number four. Number four comes when we get to the action that takes place in verse two. What, what starts in verse two is that Joshua basically says to some guys, hey, Go to, go to AI and spy it out and come back and tell us what's going on. And they go spy it and they come back and they say, listen, AI's a piece of cake. AI is a walk in the park. Joshua, there's no need to send all of the army up to AI. Just a couple of thousand guys and we'll wipe them out and it'll be a short day and we'll be back and there won't be any problem, right? That's what they say. And so they go, they go up to AI, two or three thousand folks, and they get absolutely slaughtered. They get absolutely beaten down. They try to get up to AI, and the, the folks from AI attack them and chase them back down the hill. 36 of them die. About 36 of them die. It is a rout from, from AI, and it is totally unexpected. And there are a lot of commentators that when they study this passage, when they write about this passage, they say, oh, the problem, the problem in Joshua chapter 7 is that the people are too confident. That the people of Israel have become too self-confident and they haven't prayed. They haven't sought God on this matter. And I think that there is a little element of that. Sure, there is a little bit of, of confidence. They just wiped out Jericho by shouting and blowing trumpets, right? 
Remember that part? They, I think they should have a little bit of confidence. And maybe they are moving forward faster than they should. But God has told them, I'm taking you into that land and I'm giving it to you. And no one will be able to stand against you. I think that the problem in Joshua chapter 7 is not the people's self-confidence. And it is not their lack of prayer. The problem is there's sin in the camp. The reason why AI is able to defeat Israel is because of sin, not because of self-confidence, not because of lack of prayer. The problem is that, that Achan stole some stuff. And what they are experiencing when they go to AI is discipline from God, judgment from God, punishment from God because of their sin. Does that make sense? Sense? <laughs> you get that? That the problem here is the sin of Achan, and the whole group is going to suffer because of it. That's observation number four. Observation number five is that when they go to Ai, it is an epic fail. It is not just that they are defeated on some level, it is that they are completely wiped out. They send 2,000 troops, 36 guys. This is the only time in Joshua that we see people die, people from Israel. It's the only time in Joshua they lose a battle, and it's the only time in Joshua that they seem to incur some casualties. This is a big deal. This is a big deal, especially in comparison with, with what has just happened, right? What have we seen already in Joshua? What have we seen God do already in Joshua? Other than Jericho, which is enough, right? What else have we seen? We saw that whole deal with the river, right? We've seen that God had been providing for them even before they got to the river. Before that, he brought them through the Red Sea. We see the sovereign hand of God providing for his people every step of the way. And then they go to Ai. Ai, this little podunk town that they don't think is going to be any big deal. And they are wiped out at Ai. Ai beats them and chases them back down the hill. That picture is pretty, pretty vivid that the people from Ai are chasing the nation of Israel back down the hill and they are slaughtering them as they go and 36 men fall along the way. It is an epic fail. Number six, observation number six, is that the hearts of the people melt. Look what it says in verse five. It says, The men of Ai struck down the 36 of their men and pursued them from the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them down on the descent. So the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Have you seen that before in Joshua? We've seen that phrase, right? Somebody said no. And, and you're right, we've seen that phrase, but every time we see that phrase, it is referring to the Canaanites or the Amorites, the people that are already in the promised land who are going to be destroyed, who hear about what God is doing and their hearts melt within them because they have no confidence. Well, in this case, it is the hearts of the people of Israel who melt within them. They are demoralized. This is a huge loss for them. And their confidence goes completely out the window. And that's normal and natural and expected because God had made some serious promises to them, had he not? He had told them through Joshua, no one will be able to stand against you. None of your enemies will be able to stand against you. I'm going to take you into this land, and I'm going to give you possession of it, and no one will be able to stand against you. And then they come to Ai, and, and they lose. This is demoralizing to say the least. It is a huge loss and their hearts melt within them. They are in a bad place. That's number six. Number seven is Joshua's reaction. And, and as I read commentaries about this, I saw some guys just pick Joshua apart. They said, how could Joshua respond this way? What, what, what lack of faith Joshua has to talk to God this way? How dare he approach God like this and say the things that he says? Look what it says in verse 6, Joshua's response. It says, Then Joshua tore his clothes, 
fell on the earth on his face before the ark until the evening, both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. Joshua said, listen to the way he talks. He says, alas, O Lord God, why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan? Only to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites? To destroy us? Can Joshua talk like that? Is it appropriate for Joshua to talk like that to God? Well, on the one hand, no, it's not. But on the other hand, you've got to remember, he doesn't know what's going on here. He, all he remembers is that God parted the river and brought them into the promised land. All he remembers is that God said, walk around, walk around the city and the walls will fall down. And he gave them Jericho. All he remembers is that God said, you're going to go and I'm going to be with you and no one will stand against you. And he says, wait a minute. I don't think that the grumbling that Joshua does here is equal to the grumbling of the people in the desert. I think this is a whole different deal because Joshua doesn't really understand what's going on yet. He says, wait a minute, why did you bring us here? Why did you bring us across the river just to destroy us with the Amorites? And he goes on and he develops his thought a little more. He says, if only we had been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan. Oh, this wouldn't have happened if we had stayed on the other side of the Jordan. Maybe that would have been better. And then look what he does. He says, oh Lord, what can I say? What can I say since Israel has turned their back before their enemies? For the Canaanite and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it, and they will surround us and cut off your name from the earth. He said, we, we were on a roll. We were on a roll, God, and everybody was afraid of us. But AI just beat us. AI just beat us, and everyone's going to hear about it. And they're going to realize that we're not as strong as we think we are, and we're not as strong as they think we are. And they're going to surround us, and they're going to kill us all, and they are going to wipe us out. And then look what Joshua does at the end. This is the weirdest part of the whole thing. He says, and what will you do for your great name? He says, your name's on the line here, God. Joshua doesn't understand what's going on. Some of what he is saying, he's saying because he doesn't know about the sin. All he knows is about the promises that God has made and what he's already done already. And he says, this doesn't make any sense. This doesn't make any sense. You said that you were going to give us the land. You said no one would stand against us. What are you going to do for your great name? Joshua's response, I don't think, is sinful. I don't think Joshua's response here is sinful. I think he's got the right picture in mind. I think he's got the right view in mind. He just doesn't understand all of what's going on. And that's why what happens next is so merciful. Look what happens in verse 10. This is God's response to Joshua. It says, So the Lord said to Joshua, and God sounds a little bit perturbed here. Don't you think? Get up. Joshua's on his face. Why is this happening, God? Why is this happening? What's going on? Wouldn't it have been better for us to stay on the other side of the river? And God says, get up. Rise up. Why is it that you have fallen on your face? And then God communicates what the problem is. He says, Israel has sinned. And they've also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. And they have taken some of the things under the band. And have both stolen and deceived. God says, it, get, it goes from bad to worse here, Joshua. There is a major problem. Get up off your face and deal with it. That's what God says to Joshua. Take care of it. Get rid of the sin. Look what he says. Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, for they have become accursed. How can that happen? How can that happen? Aren't they God's chosen people? Aren't they going into God's promised land? Aren't they simply doing what he has told them to do? And he says they're accursed. Then he says the most chilling thing of all. At the end of verse 12, he says, I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things that are under the ban from your midst. 
Whoa. Whoa, that's a total game changer, isn't it? It changed the game when God said, I will be with you, right? When, when God said to Joshua, I will be with you. Just like I was with Moses, I will be with you. That makes all the difference, right? When they take the ark into the water, that makes all the difference, doesn't it? When they march the ark around Jericho, that makes all the difference, does it not? God is with them, and that's a game changer. And here God says, because of your sin, I will not be with you anymore. And that changes the game. That is why they lost at Ai. is because God was not with them. And God tells Joshua, get rid of the sin. Get rid of the sin, clean up the mess, and then we'll move forward again. There is a hint of hope. There is a hint of mercy. There is a hint of restoration in all of this. Look what he says in verse 13. Rise up, consecrate the people, and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus the Lord, the God of Israel, has said, There are things under the ban in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you have removed the things under the ban from your midst. And then he goes through this process. And the process is really weird. He says, we're going to start with the big groups. The way Israel was divided up was families and clans and, and, and uh, tribes. And they had all of these groups that would either get bigger or smaller depending on which way you were going. And he says, start with the biggest group. Get them all together and cast lots. And I will pick out one of the groups from the bigger group. And then you'll move forward. And then you cast lots again. And he's going to do this several times until finally God narrows it down to one guy. And that one guy is the problem. That one guy is the sin. And God says, when you figure out which one guy it is, wipe him out. Wipe him out. Don't just wipe him out. Burn him. Burn him and all of his stuff to get rid of the sin in the camp. And what you're going to see next week is they do it. They do it. They get them all together. And it's not until the lot falls to Achan that Achan says, yeah, it's me. Yeah, it's, it's me. I've got the stuff hidden in my tent under the floor. It's me. Would this story have changed maybe if Achan had said, on this day, it's me, it's me, I'm the problem. I'm the problem. But no, Achan waits till it goes through the whole process. And then finally, when the finger of God is pointed squarely at him, he says, yeah, it's me. How many of us are exactly that same way? Slow to confession. Slow to confession. And it's not until the finger of God points at us, like the finger of God pointed at David through the prophet Nathan, that we say, I am that man. I am that man, and I have sinned against God. Oh, that we would be fast to confession, fast to repentance, instead of slow. All the difference it might make in our lives and in the world. Nine observations from this text. Number one, but. Number two, Aiken's family tree. Number three, corporate impact of individual sin. Number four, self-confidence or prayerlessness. No, the problem is sin. Number five, it's an epic fail. Number six, that Israel's hearts melt. Number seven, Joshua reacts. Number eight, God reacts to Joshua. God speaks to Joshua. And number nine, maybe the best thing of all, there is mercy every step of the way. In this whole story, there are bits of mercy every step of the way. Do you know why the spies came back and said, oh, just send two or 3,000 troops? That's mercy. It's the mercy of God. If they had sent the whole army, just think of how many people might have died. It is mercy that only 36 of those 3,000 perish. That's the mercy of God, right? And it is mercy. All the best bit of mercy in this whole thing is that God speaks clearly to Joshua and says the problem is sin. And my prayer is that that's what God will do in this place today. That by his mercy, he will convict us of our sin, which will lead us to confession and repentance. Does that make sense to you guys? 
that it is mercy. When God, when God convicts us of our sin, that is mercy. Because with conviction comes confession and repentance and forgiveness. I don't have a lot of smile on my face today because I want the conviction of the Holy Spirit to fall on you if you are sinning so that you will repent, so that you will confess and be restored. So those are the nine observations from the text. And now comes the difficult part. The difficult part of saying, well, what does this mean for us as believers? If, if, if I am in Christ, what does this story have to do with me? If I'm covered in his righteousness, if I have his righteousness imputed to me by God's grace, what does this story have to do with me? Is there a parallel of this story with me? What about the Christian? Well, let's put that on a shelf for a second and let me deal first with what does this story mean to you if you're not a Christian? I can answer that one pretty easy. For you, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want you to hear clearly that there is judgment coming. There is judgment coming. Judgment that cannot be escaped. Judgment where there is no excuse. Judgment where there is no but, but, but. There's nothing like that. There is judgment coming from God against you because of your sin. Good news is there's an escape for that judgment. His name is Jesus. This is this guy, Jesus, who is God in the flesh. He came and he lived on the earth. He never sinned once. Never sinned once. And they killed him. They killed him on a cross. We sang about it a minute ago, right? And on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. I don't know if you got that when we sang it, but that's huge. That's huge. That means that when Jesus died on the cross, he died as your substitute. That there was punishment for your sin, and Jesus stepped in and took that punishment for you. He died. And the even better news is he's not dead now. They put him in a tomb and he rose again, right? And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. That's the message I want you to hear today if, if you're not a believer. Is repent and believe and turn to Jesus. Give your life to Him and find forgiveness and salvation and eternal life. It is the best, the best life ever. Here, now, and then. Turn to Jesus. Where it gets more difficult is what does this mean for Christians? What, what does this story mean for Christians? Does God discipline us today like this? Would God do something like this today? And what I want you to hear is this. What I want you to hear, and we're going to unpack this for quite a while, is this sentence. Write it down. If you are a Christian, if you are a Christian and you are sinning, you should be afraid. If you are a Christian and you are sinning, you should be afraid. Now let's unpack that phrase by phrase. First phrase is this, if you are a Christian. And that's where it all hinges, right? Because if you are or if you aren't, there's two different stories. There are only two kinds of people in this room right now. There are those who are Christians and those who are not Christians. There's nobody kind of in the middle, kind of in between. You either are or you aren't, if you are a Christian. And that discussion has to do with justification. Track with me here for a minute. When we speak, when we speak in the church about salvation, that is a big umbrella word. Have you been saved? Have you experienced salvation? That's a big umbrella word. And under that umbrella, there are several different components. There are several different components of salvation. One of them is called regeneration. None of you are writing this down. You should write this down. Salvation, like an umbrella. 
Regeneration is one of those components. Regeneration is the process by which you are made new. It is, it is when God removes your heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh. It's what John the Baptist, uh, John, John's gospel refers to as being born again. That's when you are made new. Regeneration, it means to be made new. Another component of salvation is regeneration and justification. Justification is a huge word, and it means to be declared righteous. And it is a momentary declaration that comes from God when you believe when you are regenerated and given new life, then you are justified. You stand before God as righteous by the blood of Christ, all right? You with me on this? And the justification part is what we're talking about when I talk about are you a Christian? Have you been justified? Have you been declared righteous? The next component of salvation, the big umbrella of salvation, regeneration, then justification, then sanctification. And it, it, it holds a lot of room. Because sanctification, we believe here at this church that sanctification is a process. It is a process. It starts at our justification when we are declared righteous and it lasts for our entire lives. And it is this process of being conformed to the image of Christ. Tracking with me? Don't fall asleep, it's about to get good. It's about to get good. Sanctification is this process that we live in. If we are Christians, we're talking about justification. That's what I mean by that. And then when I talk about the rest of life that we live, when we talk about sinning and being afraid, that is a discussion of sanctification. And you know what the last part is? The last component? Glorification. That's what you'd be happy about, right? Glorification. It's when we go to heaven. That's going to be a good day, right? But don't expect that you will experience glorification if you haven't experienced regeneration. There is no glorification without regeneration. There is no glorification without justification. There is no glorification without sanctification. We want the glorification without the rest of it. And it is not to be had. It is not to be had. So, when I ask the question, are you a Christian, I'm talking about justification. Have you, have you come to Christ? Have you called out to Him to save you? Do you believe in Him? And have you received forgiveness of your sins and justification, the righteousness of Christ imputed to you? Justification is a wonderful truth. Romans chapter 1 talks about it. Romans chapter 8 says, There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. Talking here about your eternity, there's no condemnation. You are in Christ, you are in Christ, and you have been justified. And your eternity is secure. I said your eternity is secure. And this is a Baptist church, right? You should be a little bit excited about that. Your eternity is secure if you are in Christ. You can't have it one day and lose it the next day. If Christ has saved you, He saved you. And He is saving you. And He will save you. Your eternity is secure if you are in Christ. It is a wonderful and eternal hope that is only available in Christ. If you are a Christian. That's the first part. second part of what we talked about was, and you are sinning. If you are a Christian and you are sinning. And the reality is, every Christian will sin, right? Any of you in here got the sin deal beat? Like, I don't, I don't sin anymore. Haven't sinned in quite some time. You're a liar if you say that. This process of sanctification that we live in is full of ups and downs. Some days and some moments, 
we live out our faith in obedience. And some days, in some moments, we rebel. Even as Christians, we rebel. Paul says at one point, I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I do want to do. He says, I'm a mess. There's sin within me, the one who desires to do good. The willing is there, but the doing is not. The reality is that sin is inevitable for us as Christians. We all sin. And even our secret sins, even when nobody knows what's going on, they're a big deal. They're a big deal and they have implications for all kinds of folks. All kinds of folks around us. If you are Christian and you are sinning, the last phrase is, you should be afraid. And I know that there are some of you that recoil from that. You think, you can't say that, Chris. If I'm a Christian, if I'm a Christian, then I've got nothing to fear. And in one sense, you're right. When we're talking about justification, you're right. We just bragged on that, right? If you are a Christian, your eternity is secure. Amen. Amen. But if you're a Christian and you are sinning, and we talk about sanctification, you need to expect discipline from the Father. You need to expect that for His sake... That for his great name and for your good and for the people around you's good, if you are stepping out of line, he will correct you and put you back in line. If you are a Christian and you are sinning, you should be afraid. Not afraid of of eternal damnation. If you are a Christian and you are sinning, you shouldn't be afraid of that. You shouldn't be afraid that God would abuse you and hurt you. You shouldn't be afraid of him like some children are afraid of their fathers who discipline them, discipline them out of anger, which is simply abuse. If you had a father like that, I want you to hear clearly, God is not like that father. If you had a bad father, if you have a bad father, I don't want you to think that God is like that at all. He's good. He is good. And he will discipline you Rightly, for your good and for his good. If you are a Christian and you are sinning, you should be afraid not of losing your salvation, not of eternal judgment, not of abuse. If you are a Christian and you are sinning, you should be afraid for three reasons. Number one, your habitual lifestyle of sin may be a manifestation of your lostness. Tracking with me on this? If you're a Christian and you are sinning, you should be afraid because it may mean that you're not a Christian at all. If you're here today and you are wrapped up in a lifestyle of sin and you have no problems with it, you have embraced it fully, that may just be a manifestation that you don't know Christ at all. And that is definitely cause to be afraid, right? If that first part, if that first part, if you are a Christian, is uncertain, man, there's no hope beyond there. If you are a Christian and you are sinning, you should be afraid because it may be a manifestation of your lostness. If you are a Christian and you are sinning, you should be afraid because it may produce hard discipline from the Father. When I was a kid and I did something wrong at my house and I was disciplined, it didn't feel good. It didn't sound good, but it was. If you are a Christian and you are sinning, you should be afraid because the Father may well discipline you. And that discipline may be corrective. And that discipline may be painful. But take heart, it's for your good. I'll show you a text in a minute that proves it. Third thing. 
If you're a Christian and you are sinning, you should be afraid because it may cause some trouble for the people around you. We need to think about each other. When we are tempted, we need to think about each other. What, what is this going to mean for the choir? If I do this, what does it mean for the choir? What does it mean for my Sunday school class? What does it mean for my church? If I get wrapped up in this mess, what does that mean for them? Because it means something for them. Your sin impacts me and my sin impacts you. That's the way it works. If you are a Christian and you are sinning, you should be afraid. First example of this is Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. Turn there. We, we may be here for a while, so we're not, we're not close to done. So, Ananias and Sapphira, chapter 5. You remember that story, right? I'm convinced that that story is the New Testament version of Achan. It's the very same thing. It's the very same thing, except here, Christ has come. He has died for sins. He has risen again. He has ascended to the Father. The Holy Spirit has come down, and the church has begun. The era that Ananias and Sapphira live in is the era that you and I live in. It's apples and apples. Someone could easily argue, all oh, the deal with Achan, it's apples and oranges. Achan, Christ hadn't come. Achan, the church didn't exist. Achan, the Holy Spirit wasn't working like, like he does now. Ananias and Sapphira, he does. You know the story, right? Ananias and Sapphira, they buy, they buy a piece of property, or they sell a piece of property, and they come to Peter, and they act like they're giving the whole sum of that property to the church. And you remember what happens? They die. <laughs> they lied about it, and they die. Ananias dies first, and there's not a lot of dialogue there. He brings the thing, and Peter says, why have you done this? And then he dies. There's a little more dialogue when his wife comes to town, three hours later. And Peter asks her a question about that property, and basically what he says is, was that the full price? Is what, is what Ananias gave the full price of that property? You know what she says? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That was the whole deal. You know what Peter says? You hear those footsteps coming? Those are the guys that just took your husband and buried him. And you know what they're doing? They're coming to get you to bury you right next to him. Because you can't lie to God like this. You can't lie to God like this and expect him not to, not to discipline you. You can't steal like this and try to hide it. Did anyone know? Did anyone know that they had done this? No. How could they have known? This was secret. Nobody knew about that transaction except God. And he told Peter, evidently. It was, nobody was going to get hurt. And really, it's easy to look at that story and say, what's the big deal? They gave most of it. They gave a part of it, but they lied. They lied, and they kept it for themselves. And that's exactly what Achan did, right? He lied, and he kept it for himself. And he is wiped out because of it. Ananias and Sapphira, I believe, is a parallel New Testament story to Achan and his sin. Another one is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is talking about the church at Corinth and kind of the problems that they're having, especially around the Lord's Supper. They are abusing each other around the Lord's Supper. There are people that are hungry and they, and they won't let them come to the Lord's Supper to eat. There are people that are poor and they won't let them get a good place at the Lord's Supper. They are abusing each other around the Lord's Supper. And if you look um, in chapter 11, verse 27, it says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, but a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. And then look at verse 30. 
Not to laugh about this, but this is pretty serious. It says, For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. You know what that means? That means that because of the sin of the people at Corinth, the church at Corinth, some of them have gotten sick, and some of them have died because of it. That's discipline from God, right? You can't expect if you're a Christian to just go on sinning and God just say, eh, no big deal. No big deal. You can't expect that He says that sin is forgiven, but there will be consequences, there will be discipline for that sin here on the earth, even for Christians. If you are a Christian and you are sinning, you should be afraid. Another example of this commentary on it is in Hebrews. If if you turn over to Hebrews chapter 12, I'm going to read you a passage starting in verse 3. It says, For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten. I wonder wonder for how many of us that is true. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons at all. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Verse 10 says, For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, so that we may share in His holiness. That's key right there. That's the linchpin of the whole thing. He disciplines us for our good, so that we may share in His holiness. That's sanctification, right? You define sanctification, that's it. He disciplines us for our good, so that we may share in His holiness this process of sanctification. He says, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. Amen? Last time I spanked Isaac, he didn't say, oh, Dad, thanks. That was good. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet, to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. If you are a Christian and you are sinning, you should be afraid because it may produce a hard discipline from your father. Hard discipline from your father. And the last passage I want you to think about is is in 2 Samuel chapter 12. In this section of, of 2 Samuel, David has sinned against the world, against his people, against Bathsheba, against Uriah, slept with a woman that wasn't his wife, conceived a baby with her, killed her husband, covered it up. It's a mess, right? God sends old Nathan to his house. Nathan tells him a story about a man in his kingdom, who stole from a poor man to feed a traveler. David is outraged and says, Who is this man? Not in my kingdom. I'll take care of this. Nathan says, You are that man. Remember that? What I want you to see is starting in verse 13. Nathan has confronted David with his sin. And it says, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. It's good that David would recognize that, right? It's good that we would recognize that. And there are some of us in this room that need to do that today. 
to come before God and confess our sins. You know that the Bible says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession is good. David confesses. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, this is what I want you to see, and Nathan said to David, the first words out of his mouth are these, the Lord has taken away your sin. You shall not die. Woof to that. That's justification. That's, that's an example of this justification. The Lord has taken away your sin and you shall not die. But that's not the end of the story. Nathan doesn't leave his house then. The Lord has taken away your sin, you shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. See what's going on there? David has sinned. He's confessed his sin to God. He's been forgiven of that sin. But in this process of sanctification, if you want to parallel it, he's going to deal with the trouble that that sin has caused. And it's not just the death of that boy. That boy did die. You can read about it in the next few verses. There's lots of trouble in David's household as a result of his sin with Bathsheba. And God doesn't take him away from that. It's for his good. It's for David's good. It's for our good. It's for the good of God's people that David is disciplined that way. So what I want you to hear, what I want you to hear is that if you are a Christian and you are sinning, you should be afraid. Afraid because it may be a manifestation that you're not a Christian at all. And if that's the case, I've got good news. Repent and believe. Repent and believe and you'll be saved. Repent and believe and you'll be forgiven. Repent and believe and he will wipe your sins away. If you're here today and and you realize that your sin means that you don't belong to Christ at all, come to Christ. Run to Jesus and ask Him to save you, and He will. If you're here today and you're a Christian and you're sinning, you should be afraid because it may bring discipline from the Father, and that discipline may be harsh. But take heart, it's for your good. It's for your good, and He is good, and He is steering you in the right direction. If you're here today and you are sinning, you're a Christian and you're sinning, you should be afraid because it may hurt people around you. The question that I have struggled with all week is, am I aching? Am I aching? Here is one guy, one guy in the midst of millions of people, one guy who sins, and it throws the whole deal out of whack. And everybody in Israel suffers because of it. 36 of them died because of it question I'm struggling with is, am I aching? Is there sin in my life that is holding this church back? Is, Is there sin in my life that is holding my family back? Is there sin in my life that is bringing down the people around me? I think that's the question that we all need to deal with. And where we need to come back to is 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He doesn't say work your way back and get right. He says confess it and I'll cleanse you. That's what I need to do. That's what I'm going to do today in response to this. For my good, for your good, for the kingdom's good, and for God's glory, I'm going to confess my sins to God and receive his forgiveness and cleansing. And I would invite you to do the same thing.
We get ourselves in trouble when we think that because we are Christians, we can live any way we want and nothing will happen. Not true. He loves us and he will discipline us. Let's stand together and pray. Oh God, we come before you today and acknowledge your goodness and your love. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. And we thank you for days like this when you confront us with the reality of our sin. God, I thank you that if we are in Christ, we are justified. And there is no condemnation for us. That our eternity is secure because of your grace and your goodness. And God, I thank you that as Christians, when we sin, you discipline us. That you are training us and guiding us and conforming us to the image of Christ. God, I pray today that for your people, the Holy Spirit would do his task of conviction. I thank you that you've done it to me. And I pray that your people, once convicted of sin, will confess. Confess to you, confess to each other, and be cleansed. God, if we are aching, show us. And God, I pray also for folks who are in here today that are not your people, who are not justified or regenerated. Come to them today, God. Speak truth. Bring life. Overwhelm with mercy and grace. Turn their eyes to Jesus. Let them see that all they have is Christ and that plenty. God, help us as we respond in Christ's name. Amen.